In our last episode, you heard from W. Brian Arthur. You heard about his journey in economics and his work on increasing returns. In this episode, we're going to go to 1987. Because in 1987, Brian got an invitation to go to a small meeting in the Rockies in Santa Fe. And while he was struggling to get recognition for his work in the economics community, it was when Brian went to what would become the Santa Fe Institute that things really kicked off from. So in this episode, you're going to hear from W. Brian Arthur again, external professor at the Santa Fe Institute and researcher at Palo Alto Research Center, formerly Xerox Park. He's going to talk about the early days of the Santa Fe Institute, particularly the early meeting between the economists, the physicists, and a biologist. And he's going to talk about a model he built of a stock market, a model that was very different than some of the models that had came before, a model that included booms and busts. This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems. Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. W. Brian Arthur, welcome back on the show. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. So in our last episode, we talked a lot about how you became interested in economics. When you actually sat through these lectures and saw how neoclassical economics worked, you were a little disappointed in it because it didn't necessarily replicate the real world. We talked a lot about how you developed increasing returns, this concept of positive feedback in an economy and how that pushed it away from equilibrium and got different answers than a neoclassical way of looking at the economy. In this episode, what I'd love to do is jump into April 1987. You were walking across Stanford University campus and Ken Arrow pulled up on his bicycle. I'd known Arrow. Uh, he was in the economics department at Stanford and he was certainly regarded as the leading economic theorist in the world. And we were all very much afraid of Arrow because <laughs> he was so bright. So Ken is there on his bicycle. I'm walking across the quad in Stanford. Ken shows up on his bicycle with a bicycle helmet and does a semicircle around me and stops. And he didn't explain much at the time. He said, there's going to be a small meeting in the summer in the Rockies. I think it might be in Santa Fe. It'll be in September. We're having about 10 physicists and scientists there, and we want to have matched that with 10 theoretical economists, would you come to the meeting? Arrow was organizing the economic side. Philip Anders, who was also a Nobel Prize winner, like Arrow, Phil was organizing in the scientific side. So I said, sure, Ken. He says, it's going to be about mode locking. I said, oh, yeah, no problem. Arrow went away. I had no idea what mode locking was, but you don't get these invitations too often in life. So I'd said yes. And of course, this was the birth, essentially, of the Santa Fe Institute. If you're listening to our first episode with David Cracker, you would have heard about. And you go to Santa Fe and there's a meeting, a 1987 economics meeting, where you meet a whole bunch of people to kind of work out what you're all there to talk about. Is that fair? 
that meeting did take place in September 1987, and nobody was quite sure what we were there to discuss. But the meeting had been financed by John Reed, who was chairman of Citibank at the time, and Reed was rather fed up with economists and economics, and he had proposed that a small bunch of economic theorists get together with a small group of physicists and other scientists um, to see if we could exchange some ideas. The agenda on Reed's part was to see if he could help economics do something different. What was he fed up about in terms of the normal economics? If I recall that time, Citibank had put out 17, could have been 70, I may have the exact number wrong. I think they were lent as to uh, governments, these are called sovereign loans, to countries in all over the world and quite a lot in South America. They'd lent $17 billion and not all the countries had repaid that. They were advised by economists that this was a great idea, but they lost money over it and, and they were quite upset about this. I should say uh, one or two things about who was there. Present at that meeting were obviously Ken Arrow and Phil Anderson. On the economic side, we had Larry Summers, who went on to become Treasury Secretary. He was Ken's nephew. We had Tom Sargent, who was very much theorist, went on to win a Nobel in economics. On the scientific side, there was Don Farmer, who has become an economist since that meeting, from now at Oxford, really bright guy. John Holland, who I'd never met, a computer scientist. And Stuart Kaufman, the theoretical biologist? Stu Kaufman was there, a biological theorist, and Stuart was always a character. Among other things, he was a doctor, and he's told me that he liked to work in emergency clinics and hospitals during the summer, and he has delivered apparently about 25 babies. I asked a kid, Stuart, that how would you like to open your eyes on life and see Stu Kaufman, the <laughs> doctor, holding you up by your leg? So you presented increasing returns to this room and it was well received? It was extremely well received because I had been looking at how small fluctuations in markets that were inherently unstable because they had positive feedbacks, the more you went in one direction or in another direction, the more that direction itself would be favored. So it was positive feedback. I think that the physicists all got that because they were dealing with models that had plenty of positive feedbacks and they kind of grokked it and knew what that sort of science looked like. And it was basically very fancy nonlinear stochastic process theory. So that was their language. When other economists stood up to show off what they were doing, the physicists had a bit more trouble because that was equilibrium-based and rationality-based and very highly ordered, more like 19th century physics. Someone actually said to the, and I mean, the issue there fundamentally for the physicists was that yeah, these are lovely equations, but if they're not predicting what's happening in the real world, what's the point? It was worse than that. I think <laughs> that the economics at that time, and still largely now, theoretical economics made a number of assumptions 
They assumed all players in the market were identical. They assumed that everybody was hyper-rational, that they would solve some optimization problem and get the right answer for what they needed to do or buy or sell. And they assumed that there was equilibrium. These were all very heavy-duty assumptions. And I remember at one stage, Phil Anderson looked at Ken Arrow, <laughs> puzzled. He said, you guys really believe this stuff? <laughs> so <laughs> I was appalled, but felt like standing up and cheering because I didn't believe it either. And I mean, this was the timing. I mean, you had written your paper on increasing returns in 1983. This was 1987. Your paper still hadn't been, the, the journalists kept rejecting you and saying, this is not economics. But then suddenly you're in a room and there's a whole other group of people who get it. And what did the biologists think of it? I think that there's only really one biologist there, and that was Stu Kaufman. Stu was more puzzled by the standard economic approach than he was by what I had to say. Theoretical biology doesn't assume you come out with an equilibrium. Biology is about systems of many interacting elements. They could be genetic elements, they could be genes, they could be neurons in your brain, whatever. But whatever was happening in biology was always a process didn't necessarily settle down. So gene expression, genes making new proteins, that's a process. Neural activity, neurons exciting other neurons or inhibiting other ones, that's a process. Embryonic development, that's a process. So the whole idea of equilibrium puzzled Stuart, and he didn't quite get that. But I was talking about a process, so Stu very quickly got that and he was very much on board. I think there was an overall outcome of that meeting where all of us who were there sensed there was something to be done that economics could indeed learn from molecular biology or from modern physics, but nobody was quite sure what. So let me fast forward a little bit that I gave the first talk on the first day, and the talk that afternoon was John Holland. I was sharing a house with John, and John wasn't very tall, and he was a very modest person. So John stood up to give his talk, and he started to talk about what he called complex adaptive systems. Nobody was using the word complexity or complex systems much at that time. He'd been trained at MIT. He was quite a bit older than I was. He'd been working in the 1950s trying to teach the computer they had at MIT how to play checkers. Wow, back in 1950. Yeah, how to play drafts and also how to play chess. John gave his talk. It was in the early afternoon, I noticed Ken Arrow was watching politely. There was a guy, I won't mention who, was fast asleep. This was after <laughs> lunch. And when John gave his talk, I thought, yeah, this is mildly interesting, teaching computers how to play chess. And then as John gave more and more talk, I didn't quite realize that that could be important for economics. But I began to sit up. And suddenly I got this knowing. I thought, oh my God, this is extraordinarily important for economics. 
but I couldn't figure out why I thought that. It was just an intuition or a, a knowing. And I put it very succinctly to myself. I said, oh, my God, John Holland is the answer. All we need to do is find the question. <laughs> if John Holland's the answer, all we need to do is find the question. I think the answer was my hunch or intuition was that John was teaching systems, teaching computers, or if you like, computer programs, how to modify themselves to become smarter in a situation that was not well-defined, one that wasn't a mathematical problem. We just had to repeat all this dozens and dozens of times, and you would learn. The particular thing that I realized later that John was able to do was to teach computer programs to become intelligent in situations that were not well-defined. So the program had to make some sense out of what was going on and then repetitively figure out what moves, if you like, were good in that situation and what weren't. So it bootstrapped its way up and became smarter and smarter. So after that meeting in 1987, I went back to Stanford and we were all exhausted by the end of that 10-day meeting. And everybody, including the physicist side, had learned a huge amount. So I went back to Stanford and a month or so later, I remember calling John Holland and saying, hey, John, I have this dream of maybe we could put together a model of a developing economy, one in which we have many, many little agents or players, and they start off by maybe sharpening obsidian or raising sheep, and they discover how to trade among each other, sheep for wool for obsidian. So they're sort of learning as they go. And pretty soon that starts to develop and many other possibilities arise. And then you get some modern manufacturing and they discover how to make trade unions, <laughs> labor unions, and then they discover, and then some of them go on strike. So I had this dream of actually creating an economy on the computer and then watching it develop. And John would supply these particular techniques for teaching these individual agents. Each would be its own little computer program. And these individual agents would be able to get smart in this developing system that wasn't terribly well defined. John listened. I was very excited. But I realized about a year later that wouldn't work. So when I saw John the following summer, which was 1988, in the Santa Fe, we went out to lunch and I said, I don't think that that's too ambitious what I was telling you on the phone. I said, but what we could do is to model a stock market on the computer. The agents or the investors in the stock market would be little John Holland programs. They would buy and sell stock from each other. But using John's ideas of getting smart, they would realize under what circumstances each little investor, each little artificially intelligent program would realize how to recognize the situation that they were in 
just like John's chess players. And then they would recognize which situations they were in and then start to make appropriate buying and selling behavior from that. I thought this was doable. John agreed that it was doable. I got John to come out to Santa Fe. I was put in charge of the first research program in Santa Fe in 1988. That was, it followed our conference. We were going to have a program financed by Citibank on the economy as an evolving complex system. And we decided that this would be one of the first projects we did. I thought John could come out and help program this. Turned out that John was a theorist in computer science and didn't really know any modern computer language. So we, we got other people to do that. So in this model, you got one stock that the agents can trade. You make up a load of strategies about when they'll buy and when they'll sell rules that they can use. When they get bad outcomes, they learn to discard rules and try new rules out and learn essentially from their past behavior of whether it was a good idea or a bad idea to buy or sell stock. Yes, that's precisely the case. I need to go back a little bit and say there was already a stock market model in the economics literature. This was due to Robert Lucas, who's super bright theoretical economist at the University of Chicago, I believe, later got a Nobel Prize for this work, by the way. And what Bob Lucas had done was to sort of wheel up the standard economics approach. Not that easy. He said, okay, imagine there is a putative stock market. Imagine there's one stock in the market plus some safe asset that gives you an alternative to buying or selling stock. And imagine that there are N investors in the market. And to make all this work, you had to assume that they were infinitely smart. They were all identical. And there was a little random process of earnings that they were following. So if earnings went up, they might as it was a bit correlated. They might assume the stock was going to be worth more in the future and start to buy. It was wonderful stuff. I read that paper, I think it was 1978 or 79. It was beautiful mathematical standard theory applied to what's called asset pricing in the stock market. It didn't match the real world in several aspects. In the real stock market, it worked. And if you looked at Lucas's price outcomes, they looked just like nice and jagged, like stock market prices should be. But the problem was it didn't work in other aspects. For example, there was no trading at all in this model. Everybody was identical. So if one agent or one investor wanted to sell a stock, think it would go down, everyone was identical. So they would all want to sell. There'd be nobody on the buyer's side. The price would adjust until nobody wanted to sell anymore. But there's no technical trading, meaning if you tried to watch past behavior and learn from that in your buying and selling, that was of no advantage. That got ruled out. There were no times of immense volatility, followed by quiescence, which is a hallmark of rail stock markets. What we did then was to take out, it's almost like, in fact, it was Tom Sargent who came to Santa Fe, and I was having trouble getting our model up and running. Tom said, why don't you use the Bob Lucas model? 
and see if you can get that to work. So sure enough, it was imagine if Lucas's model is like a machine. I slid out the hyper-rational identical investors and we slid in a module where each investor was in principle different. They started off with different ideas or random ideas and some investors could get smart fast and others by luck didn't. So we put in our little artificially good at learning investors, slid those in. So we were able to solve for the Bob Lucas price sequence. And then when we hit the button on the same earnings data, we were able to solve what our design gave us. And when we overlaid them on top of each other, they looked identical. (laughs) Which is very disappointing for you. Terribly disappointed. I was very much upset. We ran the thing again. We didn't get anything much different. (laughs) And then we plotted the two sequences next to each other. So if there were any tiny differences, we would see those. And sure enough, there were small differences and we began to notice there were bubbles and crashes. As the stock took off in price, it would tend to go up further. If it came down in price, it might plummet. But these were fairly small effects. However, they were identical to ones you'd see in the rail market. The rail market is pretty close to Lucas's solution. But if something happens, people buy in. And the difference is only about 2 or 3% difference. And you'd sort of say, oh, well, you know, they got within 2 or 3%. Lucas did of the solution. But no, that 2 or 3% is where the money's made. It's knowing that you're going to be in a, that if you can get into a price bubble, you're going to make money if you get out in time. So the smart money tends to follow these small deviations. And you used to look at this model and some days it'd be really calm and then some days it'd go a bit nuts. I remember going back to Stanford. This is now a year or two later. And I had a guy from the city in London, from the financial sector in London called Paul Taylor, who was in Santa Fe running our model. I'd call him. This was the days of telephone calls, not emails. <laughs> the Paul, what's happening in the market? Our little market on now on a computer in Santa Fe. And, oh, not much, he'd say. And then I'd call the next day. He says, the whole thing's gone wild. <laughs> and That happens in real markets. I sat down and wondered, at least in the context of our version of the stock market, came to be called the Santa Fe stock market. I started to wonder why, and I realized that you'd expect that sort of behavior because of some of our little agents got lucky and discovered a better way to forecast. They would go into the market more heavily, knowing that was a better predictor. And that would itself change the market slightly. So if two or three agents at the same time discovered something that was highly advantageous, they'd go into the market big time. That would change the market very subtly how it operated. And that operation would cause other artificial investors 
have to change what they were doing. So we'd get avalanches of change rippling through the system. Some successful strategy would cause the market to shift and that would cause other agents to shift. And so these cause avalanches would just ricochet through the system. Other times there wasn't much going on and nobody needed to change what they were doing. So suddenly you're able to reproduce some of the things we see in the real market. The rate of learning had a big impact on how close you were to the classical model, that if you give all the agents short memories and didn't let them learn much, you got much closer to the neoclassical model. But the more you allowed them to learn from their past behavior, and presumably the more time you give them to validate or reject their hypotheses that they were using or the little model they were using, that's when you started to drift away from that more traditional model. If our little investors were slow at learning, then the system was, didn't learn fast enough, then nothing much would happen. But if we dialed up and we could do this easily on the computer, the rate at which agents might explore new ideas and invest in those new ideas and learn from those new ideas, we dialed that up with one little dial, suddenly all this behavior would emerge. So for me, I think I got one of the many or several <laughs> thrills of my life because the dream, I think, in science is to say, yes, there's a model out there, there's uh, strange things happen in reality and can't be explained by this model, but it does a pretty good job. And then if you can design a better system and suddenly it shows, it explains the real world things, that's a really deep thrill in science. Brian, this whole new approach to economics, it got a name and you're responsible for that name. What was the story of that name? Well, in 1999, the journal Science invited me to submit an article on complexity in the economy. So I wrote the article, I sent it in. Next thing, there was a phone call from an editor in London who seemed quite sophisticated. <laughs> and he said, I like your approach. You're applying ideas from complexity and non-equilibrium to the economy. I find that entirely sensible and convincing. But you've given a whole different approach here, and uh, you don't mention a name for that approach. I said, I don't think it needs a name. He says, I think it needs a name. So we got into a back and forth. I was standing in a corridor in my flat in Palo Alto with a landline phone <laughs> held to my ear, and I was very aware that whatever I said might set a label for this thing. And I said, oh, you know something, I don't really want to give it a name. But he insisted. He said, you know, you need to help people get a label so they can get their minds around this. I said, all right then, call it complexity economics. I realized later I should have said, call it non-equilibrium economics and some other, it could have. But I was on the spot, I said complexity economics. That took over, it locked in. And there are now institutes in India of complexity economics. The name has stuck. 
Yeah, there, there's groups on complexity economics. It's a bit like the label, whatever, agent-based models. You know, these labels come, but that's, the, that's how it got named. So when you were starting out in your career, Brian, you thought about some of the great places, the exciting places of scientific discovery that happened over the last 100 years, and you wished you were there. Yeah. For a long time, I knew I wanted to do research or go into science. I didn't quite know how. And I always had this dream. It was not very reachable that if I had been very lucky, if I'd been born at the right time and the right place, I might have been with all sorts of luck in Göttingen in Germany in the 1920s when quantum physics was getting invented, or just as well, I might have been in the Cavendish lab at Cambridge when molecular biology was getting invented in the 1950s and 60s. So I always had this dream, and I then I'd think about this, maybe daydream about it for half a minute, then I'd think, well, what's the chances? And so I thought, well, some other lifetime, maybe I'll be born at exactly the right time, the right place. But as I thought about it, quite a long time after I'd been originally in Santa Fe, maybe around 10 years ago or more, I realized, oh my God, I have been in Göttingen or the Cavendish. Um, if I think about it, I was in Santa Fe when these deep changes were entering the social sciences and economics in particular. Not only was I there, but I was one of the conspirators who caused all that. So I feel I've been extremely lucky being in Santa Fe at the right time. There's a wonderful quote in your writing, Brian, that I think just sums up exactly what you said. You say that nobody could object that ideas discussed there were unorthodox. There were no orthodox departments, no orthodox people. Thus, unconventional ideas could thrive and conventional ones could be held up to the light and examined for what they were. This was a different world. Brian, thank you very much for coming on the show again. And thank you. Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode. 